0: Dr. Payne, I have heard you say on so many occasions that the book of Revelation is your favorite book of the Bible. Yes, it is. Now is your time to explain in a pithy yet powerful way why that is the case.
1: Okay. Two reasons. Mm. One, aesthetics. Aesthetics the the beautiful language of revelation even the kind of intense gory stuff is beautiful it's wild it's kind of stunning. like stunning
0: if I were to compare it to art it's kind of like abstract expressionism like it's yeah. like you can get make out some images but it's also kind of
1: wild it's wild I love that so actually there's three reasons second sci-fi it's basically like an ancient version <laughs> of science fiction and I like sci-fi I, I like all the now. the swirling worlds and then third I I you know need to believe in a god of justice and mm. there's like divine intense justice wow in revelation
0: wow yeah students <laughs> welcome to the i need to know more podcast yes, we are so this is here. our last one on our bible series and yes. we have reached the word apocalypse the book of revelation Welcome. My favorite. So glad you're here. Dr. Payne's Welcome. favorite. I love the book, too. You know, when I was in church as a kid, sometimes like the pastor be preaching and, you know, when you're like in middle school mm-hmm. or even mm-hmm. high school, you're not always into that. You know what I mean? Like, oh, for sure. And so for what sure. I would do sometimes they would have Bibles in the pew or in the chair kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I would just like read the book of Revelation instead of listening to the sermon.
1: Oh, well, see, I think that you probably got a good deal out of that. I think so. Um, you know, when I was a kid, the the thing about the the language in Revelation, and by the way, it's Revelation singular. Don't say Revelations. Plural. Ah, Don't do it. Don't that, do it, students. That will drive any, any like, religion scholar <laughs> crazy, and people do it all the time, especially in pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but the book of Revelation, the language can seem very strange, especially if you... have the benefit of of what students in this class have which is an overarching view of the entire biblical story because there's a lot of symbolism and stuff and callbacks Mm -hmm. and you know really um and if you don't have a good handle on like the politics and society in the first century Mm -hmm. it can be very strange in fact one time we were at my my spouse and i were at this Revival meeting in the south. A meeting. We we live. We lived in Nashville, Tennessee. What happens at a revival meeting? Briefly. Oh man, it's awesome. It's basically like kind of what you see on TV, where there's a little bit of music and a little bit of preaching, Mm -hmm. and then a time when they invite people to become Christians, called an altar call. So it was very traditional. And this, we had a friend with us who was not a Christian, had not been in church at all, and was not from the south. So
0: you were doing it right. You brought someone (laughs) to a revival meeting. We did. We did. Yep.
1: Very nice guy. And the revival preacher started singing this song and it was right out of the book of Revelation. But mm-hmm. it totally freaked him out because the song just starts off and he says he's got fire in his eyes and a sword in his hand. Oh. And he's coming on a white horse all across this land. And it seemed scary to this guy. Sure. Um, But if you're familiar with the language, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Robe dipped in blood. <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Vibrant language. It's beautiful, but it's also like striking and kind of scary. Well,
0: this is something I want to ask right away, which is, and I think people who really like study the Bible, even like scholars of religion have Mm -hmm. brought up this point. The Jesus of the Gospels preaches, for example, in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest single teaching in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Chapters and chapters included are Jesus' famous statements about nonviolence. Right. um, Turning the other cheek. And Jesus, you know, famously at the center of the Gospels, its climax is crucified Does not fight back when, you know, even in the book of Luke, his, you know, thieves on the cross next to him say, yeah, if you're like, you know, the son of God or some special person, why don't you save yourself? And which invites you as the reader to imagine that Jesus could have saved himself. Right. And all that happens. But then like and you're kinda like, wow, like instead of having revenge on the haters, mm-hmm. he's gonna just like be peacefully resurrected and promise his followers he'll come back and he's gonna put them on like a peaceful mission which they carry out and then his his followers as we know from the book of Acts are even like tortured and imprisoned. But now is this image Okay, so this is the question, which I just got carried away with there in yes. the Long suburban <laughs> <Sabrina> Clause. <laughs> Is, is this is this image of Jesus with the robe dipped in blood, the sword coming out of his mouth to slay the nations, and really some of the blood that you find in the book, is this at odds with the depiction of Jesus in the Gospels? Like, is this the real Jesus or some different kind of Jesus? Like, did Jesus get angry after the Gospels and is now like, okay, now really the war is going to start? Like, what's happening?
1: Well, a couple of points on that for me. Um, One is I think that a lot of times students um, may be familiar with Pastor language where they talk about the God of the Old Testament mm. as this violent, vengeful God, and then the God of the New Testament as this peaceful, mm-hmm. um, kindly, gentle God. And then, but that is pretty much leaving out the book of Revelation. <laughs> right. <laughs> because in the book of Revelation, yeah, Jesus is a a um an agent of divine vengeance, right? Um, and and There's, in fact, really beautiful language about like people who've been martyred calling out vengeance, vengeance, Mm -hmm. and then Jesus basically doing that act of vengeance. So, yeah, I think a lot of times there's this misconception that there's a different kind of God in the Old Testament and New Testament, and Jesus is um, multifaceted. I've heard the book of Revelation called the fourth or the the, the fifth gospel, like Mm -hmm. that there is... There's the book, uh, or there are the four gospels, and then there's the Soon and Coming King gospel then you have to ask yourself what's good about this news. Well,
0: and, and all of the all the stuff about Revelation, probably some students at least listening to this, some yeah. listeners. Yeah. Maybe we have listeners that aren't even our students in the class. Welcome. Welcome <laughs> to the Need to Know More <laughs> podcast. Yes, welcome. Welcome to people's moms and dads who have been tuning in through through this Aww, series.
1: hi, Mom and Dad. We hear from a couple of you. Great Pr- to hear from great you. Great
0: to hear from you. Probably some people at least are familiar with the kind of cultural battles that have gone on around the book of Revelation. Uh-huh. That somehow Revelation is a... Roadmap about the end of the world or it's like a political thing about Russians or the Chinese or the US and what's gonna happen I think in all of that and by the way I find a lot of that stuff really fascinating personally, right. and I was into it as a kid and my family was really into that and so on um, But I think it could be easy to miss and It would be really unfortunate to miss the notion that the revelation this apocalypse this as we know from the from the lecture on Monday this unveiling is an unveiling of Jesus like, the book is about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The faith is about Jesus. You know, as, as I've heard some people say about just Christian faith generally, like, God is the gift. Like, we're not chasing after, like, temporal little minor victories and who's right about this and that. Like, God is the gift. The revelation at the end is the revelation of Jesus Christ and the announcement that Jesus is coming. Like, without that, there's nothing else. Right. Do you think that's fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think I think that that's the challenge of reading revelation to to keep jesus at the center yes of it. no because, that's what i mean yeah exactly. yeah because there's just so much um mysterious language that's swirling around and actually christians especially american christians haven't done really i, I would say that they've they've had a hard time keeping <laughs> jesus at right. the center right. they keep all this other stuff, all of this stuff. the politics you know, on their and, minds and the, yeah the esoteric yeah. stuff
0: But to keep Jesus at the center and to imagine like, or even just to to put it like you mentioned this idea of a first century context, like Christians, you know, worship a crucified Savior. This is a violent event. Mm -hmm. And the world in the first century, probably around the authorship of this book, was in front of some people's eyes, seemed to be falling apart. You had a confluence Mm -hmm. of things like the eruption of major volcanoes, persecutions perhaps under emperors like Nero and Domitian, and just Mm -hmm. like, just a, a sense, you know, the destruction of the temple. In yes, seventy AD? The expulsion
1: of the Jews from Jerusalem. The
0: expulsion of the Jews from Jerusalem. The expulsion from Rome in the fifties and the conflict there. The fire. Just, you could imagine a world maybe not so unlike our own world where people just really felt like things were falling apart. And to mm-hmm. see the Book of Revelation as this stunning response, the perspective of Jesus, like in the middle of that, it's really. I don't know. It seems like a really good starting place to think about the book.
1: I think that I, I, I totally agree, and I think that you you mentioned a volcano, um Vesuvius, Vesuvius right? Vesuvius, yeah. yeah, which is one of the most fun and interesting like stories of the ancient world because there are, are there's record of it in our world today. So I love that. Um and I think it's also a great lens for thinking about like a lot of scholars think that that Vesuvius was on the mind of the author of Revelation because um it you know, this huge natural disaster. And anytime there's a natural disaster, I think people tend to think like Will I exist? Will all of humanity exist after this? Right. And so, yeah, I think it's it's a great jumping off. My
0: I think. my wife actually, as a kid, I don't know how young, but visited the site of of, of Pompeii. Of oh, Ma- where really? Mount Vesuvius buried the town. It made its huge impact on her. Like she talks about it all the time. Like it, it was like one of her favorite things she's ever visited.
1: Wow. Well, I was a very small child when Mount St. Helens exploded. or oh, er, yeah. You know, went yeah. up um in this area, and mm-hmm. all the people who were around during that time it's just may 17 1980 that's right i
0: remember the day because that's my anniversary may 17th
1: Wow, an auspicious day! An auspicious day <laughs> for a marriage. <laughs> we actually in love. we
0: actually climbed Mount St. Helens together two years ago That's on very our anniversary. Sweet. On the anniversary, on the on the on the uh t- uh you know some significant like the 18th anniversary or something of the eruption. That was no, very no, not the 18th. It must have been like the 30, you know, some big number of the anniversary. That's kind
1: of Susan to do that with you.
0: I know she didn't really <laughs> like it that much, and it Happy was anniversary. She was really good though. She's a good hiker. She she sells herself short on her <laughs> hiking skills, but. Anyway, oh, 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 I wanted back to bring to back Revelation. this one thing. Yes, back to Revelation. Um, not Revelations. That's right. Um, the thing about the robe dipped in blood, I just wanted to find that yes. passage and bring this up. It's in it's in Revelation 19. I saw heaven open. This is Revelation 19.11. And there was a rider, uh, there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. There you have those. Yes. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. That's actually... I love it. I, that puts some chills on my body. Yeah. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now, <sighs> whoo! One thing I wanted to mention there, though, is the robe dipped in blood. I think there's room for a debate there about whose blood is robe is dipped in. Mm-hmm. I've heard people say, oh, no, it's it, Jesus was crucified, obviously. He is the the crucified, the bloodied one. He, it is his own blood um, that will save people. The context of that passage makes it sound to me a plain reading that it is not his own blood.
1: But in <laughs> fact, the blood of his enemies. That is
0: the blood of the enemies. I don't know. What do you think?
1: I think either is fine, but I tend to be with you on that one because, um, yeah, I think there there's this... Um, the portrait of this god is mm. of a god of of war mm-hmm. but a righteous war right I like like going out and and yeah killing the right ones
0: i I feel I feel compelled to come back to this issue though again yeah. and ask you like and I know beca- I know you're a peace-loving person. I know you appreciate yes, for example yes. the spiritual heritage of your Alma Mater, George Fox University right. as a Quaker institution. Love those Quakers. Quakers historically and by and large are are pacifists. Mm-hmm. Which means not just not going to war but it, but really abstaining from any form of violence. I don't know like how does this how does that violence you said you like it because you know this issue of like there's there's justice in the world mm-hmm. that justice comes at a cost. It sounds like in this book though. Which hopefully students, if yeah. you're reading along and doing the readings, you know we don't have to like go back and cover every point of the book, but you can read some of this, right? And it's like it comes at a cost of immense violence.
1: Yeah, I think that. Um, well, there are many different ways to be pacifist. Of course, there's and there's non-aggressive pacifists. There's non-violent pacifists. So there's some people who say that you should never involve engage in violence, mm-hmm. and then there are some who say you can still consider yourself to be a pacifist as long as you do not initiate oh, the see. violence. So mm-hmm. there's. There's lots of different, um, I think there's a little bit of a spectrum there, but um, for many Christian pacifists, w- revelation is actually a vital, in fact, maybe like the most important statement about Jesus mm-hmm. because the key there is that it is Jesus who is enacting this this violence mm-hmm. and not humans. So I think a lot of pacifists might say that um in order to be like in order to believe that there is justice in this very unjust world. So there's just all these terrible things that are happening and I don't even know. Like it it doesn't even it almost doesn't matter what day the students are listening to this, there will be some big story of injustice that cannot be made right in this world. Um and in order to abstain from doing some sort of act of violence to try and make it right, Mm -hmm. the argument goes. You have to believe that there is a Jesus who will right. someday return and make those things right. That's that's how I interpret it mm-hmm. from like if you were to say like, OK, what's a pacifist take on this? Like, how do you even justify this violence? And I think if if you're to take on a Christian pacifist um, perspective, you could say, well, how could you not? Mm-hmm. You know, like, how could you abstain from violence mm-hmm. without? Knowing that there's like this divine judgment.
0: Well, and I think on the theme of judgment, I think about like the Apostles' Creed, an early statement of faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator mm-hmm. of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin, con- uh, you know, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. You know, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven, and He will come again to, to judge. judge the living and the dead. And so that that theme of judgment is a major part of christian belief Mm -hmm. and i think it's something that a lot of christians probably look out at the world or their own churches and just say like where is that theme of judgment Mm -hmm. like and i think that this is a a trustworthy phrase i mean you can say what what you think dr Payne, but like without judgment there's no justice Mm -hmm. notions of justice and judgment are linked together if you want to get justice there has to be like some force in the universe whether it's violence or something else there are a lot of forces that are not violence right but like there has to be some way to get that. There has to be some guarantor of the, of the, of the justice. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that theme of judgment sometimes can, can really kind of, I don't know, can rile me up like in a positive way. It can make me think like, yeah, if there are things that are supposed to be made right in the world, like it's not just, it's not, it can't just be phrased in the passive things were made right. It's like, well, no, who is making them right? Yes. Someone has to actually do that.
1: I think, you know, for, for those of us in the American church in a, a state of great comfort, right? No one is right. um, forcing us to deconvert with a gun to our heads or something like that. But there are lots of Christians in other parts of the, the world who are under s- maybe more similar circumstances to the people, the Christians of the mm-hmm. community that, that would have been reading revelation for the first time mm-hmm. or hearing revelation for the first time. And um, if you are in a, a position of being um, persecuted, I think that you're, that the perspective that you'd have on this text would be quite different. Like what a great comfort to oh, know yeah. that even though mm-hmm. like your body may be burned or you may be executed, um, that they're, that you're not forgotten. Right. I think one of the best passages, um, from that, from this beautiful book is, um, that they pay attention to the the people who have been martyred mm-hmm. they get a voice mm-hmm. and Jesus is there. Yes. They're like, righteous judge
0: well even the first couple of chapters have these really stunning letters to the churches Mm -hmm. it really takes up a lot of chapters i guess two and three so the opening chapter just to review the book is like this guy, John, who just identifies himself as John, which is, was actually not normal for apocalyptic literature written it's during this period. Hmm. There were there were actually dozens or even hundreds of apocaly- Jewish apocalyptic texts written during this time period. And usually yeah. they're anonymous.
1: Why do you think it matters that John is identified here? Well,
0: I think it's it, it adds a certain kind of personalization or historical situatedness to the book. Hmm. Like, for instance, a lot of apocalyptic works during this period, the author would take on a pseudonym. So, like, the author would call himself Enoch, mm. who was a kind of a mysterious character from the Old Testament. Or Elijah was a popular yeah. apocalyptic author. Because, remember, Elijah in the Old Testament um, flew up into heaven in a I fiery chariot. That. So, That's it's great. like, that gives him the mystery, like, maybe he's still alive, like, in a cave writing okay. apocalyptic yeah. works, right? Enoch uh, did never doesn't die in the book of Genesis. God just takes him. And so, he makes a good candidate. Moses, no one knows where Moses is buried. So, you right. can have Moses be an apocalyptic right. author. And, indeed, Moses was and others. But in this one, he's just like, yeah, I'm John. Here I was, I was a political prisoner on this Patmos Island and stranded. And so it it adds a kind of, I don't know, I don't know how to put it exactly. It, 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 it situates the book. Uh, it's like the author was not trying to hide. The author was trying to reveal. That's the whole point of mm-hmm. apocalypsis, mm-hmm. the r- unveiling. You're trying to show something, but how do you really show it? And so that's the opening vision. But then it turns to these letters to churches and these letters are very like,
1: mysterious
0: they're very mysterious they refer to groups and and things that are like you could tell that there was some living world there that we don't necessarily know about like mentioning in the message to Ephesus mentioning the Nicolaitans and God and Jesus Mm -hmm. is saying I hate you know you you at the church of Ephesus you hate the works of the Nicolaitans turns out I also hate it So good for you but like we don't really know what the Nicolaitans are you could do historical research and try to find out what that is
1: and lots of people do. And
0: lots of people do. But like, it's not obvious right away. Or they talk about someone in another letter called, um, that they call, um, where the heck is this? Is this in Sardis or wherever? No, not the Sardis. Is it the Philadelphia? They talk about a woman that they call Jezebel, which is like a code word from the Old Testament. Um, and they talk about Balaam, the yes. teachings of Balaam. And they the Nicola- he mentions the Nicolaitans again in, in the, um, the message to Pergamum. Oh, Pergamum, of course, in Berlin. At one of the museums in berlin they have the pergamum altar which i guess they looted from the actual place of pergamum at some (laughs) point but i mean this idea that at pergamum satan lives there like that and there was a martyrdom there of this of this antipas my witness um pergamum i mean this altar was you know probably some like major altar to another god right not not to not to the one not to the one god certainly not to jesus and so you know these are even some things like we can see today like oh, artifacts yeah. from, from this mm-hmm. from this time period and to, and to realize the kind of world of polytheistic worship that, that the people who received this book first lived in and what it might have been like to have been killed for not worshiping at an altar like that.
1: One of the things that, um, so when I was in graduate school, there was a, a show on HBO called Rome and mm. a lot of the historians that I knew loved it because they, pay, they they tried to pay close attention to like all of the different kind of, um, historical details and religious practices right. and stuff like that from the, the first, first century, second century. I mm-hmm. can't remember how long the show went. But um, one of the things that kept coming up was this idea that Christians were a little different, much different from the ancient Romans and really even um, many other ancient cultures in that they had this idea of like a cosmic global God. Like the idea that it was God of Jesus was the returning king, not just in Judea, but the whole world, Mm -hmm. which would have been like in all of these towns that they mentioned, which would have been like very strange. Right. Because the typical practice would be to just go to if you're in Corinth, you worship at this temple, you know, the God of this area, the God of that area.
0: It's regional. It's a regional thing. It's like team sports. Like, hey, this is my (laughs) team. Right. Right. I live here as my team.
1: Right. But yeah. And my husband is like he thinks he's a global Seahawks fan, right? Like he thinks the <laughs> Seahawks are like the team of the world, but right. no, not really. Not so really. I mean, I I think. D- do you think that that would have made Christians like extra strange? Are we seeing that here in this? Oh yeah, this book.
0: Oh definitely. I think it would be strange to imagine. I I think what makes you extra strange is if, and this actually makes a bridge to something I want to talk about, something deeply creepy later in the book, which is. What is it like to live in a world in which just around it feels like on every corner you're being asked to make huge compromises Mm. and not just little compromises like oh you want to go out you want pizza tonight I want wings let's do pizza and wings like compromises about your deepest values even with the things that you might purchase even I mean I've read scholars of the first century writing about this kind of thing saying it would have been very difficult for an average citizen in the roman empire to have avoided making some kind of gesture or sacrifice to gods various gods right. or to the emperor at many different points and if you cannot avoid that you know or the idea like hey it's a, it's a national holiday come out on the street there's going to be a statue paraded and you're going to salute to the statue and it's of another god and also of there's gonna be an image of caesar coming by i mean mm-hmm. i'm just making this example right of, but right just to say and like oh look Dr. Payne and her family aren't coming out of their house. I right. know they're home. What are you doing? Get out here, you know what I mean? Like right. it would become really conspicuous. Almost as though um yeah, it would be it, it, it would almost be like everyone would have to participate in this system.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that is helpful maybe for the students to remember is that here in our cultural context, we have this idea that there shouldn't be like the 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 government and our religious practices should be distinct from one another. Right, but right. in the ancient world, if you're in living in the Roman empire, like those two things are one and the same. Ooh, right. Yeah. So yeah, it would be, it would be like, so you know how they have those experiments where you're, you're supposed to like go into an elevator and stand the other direction, you know, stand facing your, with your back against the doors or do something like go to a sports game and not participate in the national Anthem. You know, yeah. just don't just sit there. Don't right. stand. Don't right. We think of that as awkward. What about if that's illegal or even treasonous? Oh, It's hard to imagine.
0: It's actually awkward even to go to a sporting event and just not even really care about the, the sport and just kind of sit. I, I've been to sports games like this. Uh-huh. My friend <laughs> took me to a Blazers game. Love the trail Blazers. I basketball, do love the Blazers. But I kind of didn't care that much. Oh. It was it was just fun to be with my friend. Right. And eat right. the $9 hot dog, et cetera. <laughs> Probably $12. But like, I'm just kind of sitting there with my arms crossed like, neat. And you, and even, everybody feel, else
1: is just you even feel
0: crazy. like an outsider and not just that you're even against it, but just that yeah. you're not as participating with gusto. Right. And so you could imagine what it would be like to be a Christian living in an area that was not Christian where people are participating with gusto in the team sport that is like not just sports, but it's like everything that you value and care about. Your, your central proclamation, Jesus is Lord. And they're like, yeah, 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 but actually Caesar's Lord. So come out and say that right now. Or, you know, or something like that. I mean, I'm I'm imagining scenarios. I don't know all the ins and outs of what everyone might have experienced, but the book of Revelation seems to be addressed to a scenario where people, where these were active and living and painful decisions people had to make.
1: So in addition to all these Christians in various communities and um, various relationships to the state, we also have really strange and mystical symbolic language we should we should go and look at a passage that features some of that
0: i have an idea okay i've been waiting for this all semester oh good just to talk about just this one passage it's (laughs) revelation chapter 13
1: big finish okay
0: this is our text for the week revelation 13 um the headings in the bible i have here say the first beast and the second beast it's 18 verses long, full of drama, symbolism, a little bit of a mystery, a little bit of a code. Yes. And actually, I want to preface this by saying this has a code. I think this is a code we can actually solve. We actually know the answer to this code, and the author wasn't even trying to hide it that hard. Okay, so secret code. Let's get into let's this. decode the Bible. So this is Revelation chapter 13, NRSV translation. We're going to read back and forth, as has been our practice. It's been fun doing these all semester, it has. With these readings. Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed mm-hmm. this a lot.
1: Same, same.
0: One more time. (laughs) Wait. Do you want (laughs) to (laughs) start?
1: Yeah, I'll start. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names.
0: And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it his power and his throne and great authority.
1: One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast.
0: They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it?
1: The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months.
0: It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven.
1: Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation.
0: And all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slaughtered.
1: Let anyone who has an ear listen.
0: If you are to be taken captive, into captivity you go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints.
1: Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon.
0: It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed.
1: It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all.
0: And by the signs that it is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived.
1: And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed.
0: And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead.
1: So that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name.
0: This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is six hundred sixty-six.
1: Whoa! We just went there. Mark of the beast. Ooh, ah, so crazy! What, yeah. a, what a chapter! This, I, this I repeated love it.
0: emphasis on the the kind of like the the wound and the healing of the wound mm-hmm. of the of the uh, at the beast and the representative of the dragon of the beast and the. It could really spin your head round and round. But it's just, yeah. it's just what a creepy scene.
1: It is creepy. The, yeah, the, the head wound is, I think, especially creepy. And it's just, when when I, when you read it, you're just like, who is this beast? Who is this? We six, have to know. The
0: 666. Six, six. I mean, students, surely you you know at least this number culturally that it's a, that it's a symbol of mm-hmm. evil. There's right?
1: usually, like every few years there's like a horror movie about that featuring you gotta have the the phrase Mm -hmm. and so
0: on and it's like if there are like parking spaces numbered i've heard a lot of people (laughs) paint parking spaces they won't number a spot six 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 they'll just go Uh, straight from six six five to six six seven because it's like
1: oh that's like how buildings don't have a 13th 13th floor floor, exactly
0: so uh, here's what i think now in a way i actually think we know what this symbolism means i don't think it's actually hidden at all i think the author wants to reveal it okay um and so i want to i want to give a shot at this by the way i'm not making this up this is new testament scholars have 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 been saying this for for many 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 decades or more i mean we think we kind of know it and now i think any way that we explain this we don't want to like take take that like chilling mystery out of the text i think this text is supposed to have a kind of chilling mystery to us Mm -hmm. but i think that actually the revelation of the the code here and some of the message about this mark and the buying and the selling actually maybe has for us a contemporary message which doesn't allow us to put this in the past true and doesn't allow us to just punt it off into the future but it kind of puts it into our lives today which wow. which is actually harder because it hasn't been the thing with the bible all along if you want to try to like just have debates about history you can kind of confine the bible to a cage of the past like it's about whether it happened or if you just want to say the bible's just all like some crazy code about the end of the world (laughs) it's not then it's like oh so i get a pass now about how my life is lived and about who i am but if the bible speaks to you now in your life here if the 666 is a mark that even you could have or i could have that Whoa. gets a little creepier. So let you me. You just
1: gave yourself a tall order. Okay. I did.
0: I'm going to try to. Okay. All right. I'm going to I'm gonna try to land, land this. I'm going to try to deliver. I'm going to try to land this thing. <laughs> so Jews living at this time had a system. Uh, of of numbers and letters that's called the gamatria gamatria with a G. We, you can do this if you do. Did you ever do a code, Dr. Payne, as a kid, where you like write out a code like in numbers, but then you numbered the alphabet, like oh, A is yes. one, oh, B yes, is yes, two. Yes, yes. So you could write out like. I also did Mad Libs. It's a whole thing. Oh, yes, fun. yes. So you could write a code which is like three, nine, fourteen, da and then the person would have to like, you know. Get the code. So actually Jews had a system like this too. And this is just how they wrote out their numbers. In fact, it's even simpler because the Jewish alphabet, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, actually all had a number associated with it. So he's appealing transparently to the Jewish system of numbering a name. So like the name Leah Payne. Right. In this system, if you spelled it out, like Lamed, L, that's worth 30, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you did this, you could actually come up with a number for your like I would Leah have Payne. my
1: own number, yeah. And
0: your number would be like six hundred and nine, you know, ten yeah. or five hundred and twelve or one thousand and fifty, or you just add up the numbers. It turns out that there's a pretty obvious suspect for whose name the letters of their name adds up to six six six. That this author would have known Drum roll. about. And we even have a smoking gun because if you spell the names, okay, I'll, I'll save the smoking gun. If you if you do the name. Of Nero the Roman yes. Emperor who lived probably during the time of the authorship of this book I and mean we, we know about Nero um, Nero was was an emperor who ruled from about 54 to 68 AD he persecuted Christians he was known as being totally insane
1: and he was known for his creative and very cruel persecution very
0: cruel um, he's also someone who I believe Nero committed suicide mm-hmm. but one of the most popular conspiracies of the first century was <laughs> the idea that Nero would rise from the dead that he right. would have, like, a, a mortal wound, but that he would somehow come back and lead some kind of vengeance against his enemies. Which is a plot line that actually oddly mirrors some of the plot line of Revelation itself. Mm-hmm. The idea that Jesus was wounded and that he's coming back and that he, in fact... So this was, like, a known thing. It's called it's called, um, Nero Redivivus, if you want to look it up.
1: The anti-Jesus, if you will. The
0: anti-Jesus, right. Mm-hmm. And so this character is, like, this evil character and this beast... And so the name Nero in the gematria, so like nun would be how you would spell it, is worth 50. Um, resh, Nir, uh, it would be worth 200. Um, the vav there would be worth six, and the n on the end would be worth 50 again. And then and then kai, so it'd be like Nero Caesar, Nero mm-hmm. Kaiser. Mm-hmm. So then the kof and the sa so- and the Samech and the resh would be worth 100 and 60 and 200. Guess what that equals if you add it up? 666. Six, six. And here's the smoking gun. If you translate the name nero caesar in latin which it wouldn't have the n on the end of nero like greek would be Neron kaiser uh-huh. latin would be just be nero kaiser it, it you lose 50 because you lose that n at the end of nero so the number would be what's 666 minus, uh 50 616 mm-hmm. is the mark of the beast 616 guess what some early manuscripts of the book of revelation Actually say the number is 616. Well. Not 666. So it's almost, it seems almost certain that the author here was actually writing out the name Nero Caesar. Now, what does this mean? Okay, here's then the payoff. And I think to me where this comes, where this makes me feel uncomfortable about the way I live my life and makes me like think as a Christian, who am I worshiping, Nero Mm -hmm. or Jesus? Mm -hmm. There's this whole thing about what's the whole point of this mark? It's that you have this mark on your hand or your forehead, right? Right. And so it's visible, in other words. Like, people can tell if you've got this mark. And if you don't have the mark, you can't buy or sell. Yes. So it's like bringing economics into this. Yes. And it makes me think to myself this. My, my, my economics, my political behavior, just my, like my, my behavior in the world, the way that I act in the world, my consumer habits, if they were to be analyzed, do I have the mark of Jesus? Like, names are really important in Revelation. Whose name is written on you? Do I have the name like Jesus written on me and is that obvious or do I have the 666 written on me, you know, like, yeah, and with how wealthy we are today in our country, for example. We, 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 we try to express our values through our purchases. It's like the only way we sometimes feel like, hey, it's the new year. I'm going to buy a new Bible because I want to read the Bible and I'm going to buy a gym membership and I'm going to buy a fishing rod because I want to take up fishing. And maybe we don't even do these things, but we think sometimes as consumers, we can just express our values through our purchases. And I think the author here has very much a finger on that idea that we do express our values through our purchases and that some of us have the name 666 written on us, not Jesus, Right. And so that makes me think, oh, dang. So Nero is a symbol. He was real in the first century, but it's also a symbol of anything you could do that's anti-God, that's wrong in the world, that's beast-like against God.
1: Here's why I appreciate that interpretation as a a historian, um, especially of American Christianity, because a lot of American readers have been pretty obsessed with understanding who this beast is and mm. not just the beast they've been obsessed with the book of revelation mm-hmm. for its um it's like they've they've read it sort of like a farmer's almanac like this idea that right. it can give you sort of a you know just like an almanac might give you a weather report or a planting suggestion guide right. so the book of revelation could give you a sort of one-to-one idea of what to expect mm. when it comes to the returning Jesus and the fate of Christians mm. and the uh, eventual glory of God and the church and mm-hmm. all these kinds of things. So there are lots and lots of, there's been a lot of time and ink spilt um, <laughs> in trying to explore who the beast is and right. how you would know and right. how you would prepare for that. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, maybe the idea of the, the, the beast's mark and how we may or may not be participating in that takes brings it home in a personal way and also is a little more faithful to the general um so the idea of studying the end or or what jesus says or what the bible teaches about the end of time is called eschatology Mm -hmm. and there's a whole field of that like and it's usually you can't really talk about eschatology without talking about revelation for one thing it's the end of the Bible and it's the, Mm -hmm. you know, describes what, uh, Christians might imagine the returning Jesus looks like Mm -hmm. and is like, and we can get obsessed with trying to figure out what the end is instead of, you know, taking the advice of Jesus who in other passages in the new Testament says, you know, nobody's really going to know what time, you know, like we can try and read the signs. Um, but really we should be thinking about again, the person of Jesus Mm -hmm. and, whether or not we are being faithful followers of jesus for when he returns
0: and that's how the book ends with you know the faithful united with jesus there's a war with the dragon there's you know this these cryptic references to babylon really to rome Mm -hmm. jesus has the sword in his mouth but now at the very end the tree of life is back the city is there and god's people are together um and so I don't, maybe our encouragement here as we close out our last need to know podcast in the Bible series is to, there's so, there's so, I, I hope, I hope somebody has had their heart like lit on fire with the details in the Bible and just wants oh, to I like love that stuff. Yes. so deep into it. I mean, that's how I got hooked on this stuff. It's how I had my career and my calling as a Christian and as a professional, as a biblical scholar and a professor, like I got into that, but especially maybe for people like me and for professors or just any of you students like to think keeping keeping the main things the main things and keeping your eye as a christian if you're a christian you keep your eye on the prize and that's jesus and all and, and jesus is the telos the end point the thing to which it all points and so to keep that in mind as we read whether it's revelation or just the entire bible seems like a really crucial you know point
1: well to quote the book of revelation the very end come lord jesus <laughs>